postmodern Jewish thinkers in a postmodern world. I think every, every part of that title needs to be explained, um, including the Jewish thinkers. So I'm gonna, I'm, gonna try and use, I'm gonna try and use this evening as an opportunity just to give you a taste, just to give you a taste of the mind of Ludwig Wittgenstein. And I have to be honest and tell you that this, I, I, I don't know how many of you were here for the Heschel lecture and you might have be able, you might have picked up in between the lines that I'm quite fond of Heschel. Did that come over? Okay. So if I like Heschel, I love Wittgenstein. Wittgenstein is, is, is absolutely, absolutely the thinker who, uh, who more than anyone else has influenced, has influenced my thinking. Richard Rorty, the famous Californian philosopher, says quite clearly that in his opinion, Wittgenstein is the most important thinker, not only of the 20th century, but of the entire modern period. And when somebody said, well, what about Kant? Rorty responded, what about Kant? So Wittgenstein, Wittgenstein is really, really, really important. Um, He's not exactly postmodern, not in the general, not in the normal sense of the word, and he's also not exactly Jewish, not in the normal sense of the word. So what I would like to do this evening, I'd like to spend a little bit of time. I really only want to give you a taste. I've given you, I do this, I apologize. I've given you a whole pack of material. We're going to read little bits. We're not going to, we're not going to wade our way through this. This would be a, you know, a, a, for a seminar that we have four or five sessions on Wittgenstein, we would, we would, we would plow our way through this. But I do want to give you some, I do want to give you some introductions and maybe you'll have a go at it yourselves. You'll have a look. What I want to say before I start, I'm going to tell you about Wittgenstein's life. I want to tell you a little bit about his story. I don't do that with everyone I talk about. But Wittgenstein's story is so remarkable and so unusual and so central to understanding his thinking and also so accessible relative to the complexity of his thinking, which is very difficult. So I'm going to, I, I want to give you a little bit of a sense of who this remarkable man was. Um, and then what I would like to try and share with you, although this is a little, bit, a little bit difficult, I'd like to try and share with you some insights into Wittgenstein's thought with a sense, I'd like to give you a sense of just why it is so important, how it affects our lives, how it affects us as Jews, and this fits in, of course, with the general theme of everything that I'm talking about and all the time that I'm here, how it affects us specifically as Jews in a time of, of sovereignty. So this issue, which is always going to keep on coming up in every one of my sessions, is going to come up a little bit tonight as well. Wittgenstein. Ludwig Wittgenstein was completely Jewish in Nazi terms. He had three Jewish grandparents. But his mother's mother was the one that wasn't Jewish. So halachically, right, by all halachic definitions, Wittgenstein was not a Jew. He actually never even practiced Judaism, and there are people who have accused Wittgenstein of anti-Semitism. I think it's a mistaken, a mistaken reading of some of the passages in his writing, but he has been accused of anti-Semitism. I want to try and suggest this evening that Wittgenstein, who was not halachically Jewish, this might sound a little bit weird, even though he himself was not Jewish, he was a Jewish thinker. His questions, his methods, 
and the implications of his teachings, I think, are steeped um, very, very deeply in the Jewish tradition. Now, before I, before I go too far with that, I want to tell you that one of the most important things to understand about Wittgenstein is that Wittgenstein is enigmatic. Wittgenstein was a living enigma. When we hear his, his life story, you'll discover here, there's, some, there's a seat over here, come and join us. There's one over there, there's one over here. Um, when you hear, when we talk about his life story, I think you'll get a sense that his life story is is enigmatic. So as a result, there are books that are absolutely convincing about Wittgenstein and Judaism, Wittgenstein and Jewish thought. But then there are really, really convincing books about Wittgenstein and Catholicism, and how Wittgenstein is really a Catholic thinker, and you really need to understand the Catholic context in order to make sense of Wittgenstein. And then there's this phenomenal book about Wittgenstein and Zen Buddhism. And the extent to which Zen Buddhism is absolutely essential to the comprehension of Wittgenstein. And I read that, and I was completely convinced. And then you have Wittgenstein, and the list goes on and on and on and on. Of course, that is possible because Wittgenstein is so, is so enigmatic. It, it's, it's really difficult to pin him down. He really feels simultaneously as you read him, you feel that there is something here which is on the one hand very mysterious, very strange, and on the other hand you have the sense of something that's very, very familiar. And you can even come away from Wittgenstein, you, I, I spent a long time struggling with him, and you come away from him sometimes and say, okay, I've got it, I've figured it out. What's the big deal? The Rambam said that. Or the Dalai Lama says that, or this one says that, and that one says that. And you can really come away with the sense of Wittgenstein so strange, so difficult to pin down, and at the same time so familiar and so obvious. And what's the big deal? And that's clear. So Wittgenstein is enigmatic. That's the first thing I want to say. Before I tell you about his life story, and I'm going to, I want to tell you the most important thing that you need to understand about Wittgenstein's philosophy. And I always say this to my students, and they always get frustrated. They always get annoyed, and at the end of the course, they'll come over and say, now we understand what you said. I hope I manage, it. I hope I manage to pull it off for you this evening. Wittgenstein says nothing. So if you're looking for a take-home message, you've got it. You can go. Thank you and good night. Wittgenstein doesn't actually say anything. Um, he, doesn't, he doesn't say anything. Um, unbelievable, isn't it? He had a whole career of, of saying nothing. Now, it's very important that he says nothing, and, and he has this really profound way of saying nothing, and I will try and make some sense of that too. Ludwig Wittgenstein was born into the wealthiest family in Europe. He was a multi, multi, multi million gazillionaire. A very, very, very successful Jewish family settled in Austria who um, were very, very effective industrialists. And Wittgenstein grew up with a silver spoon and a gold spoon in his mouth. He came from an extraordinary family of geniuses. His family were absolutely brilliant, one after the other. There were seven children, and each one was more brilliant than the next. Um, Wittgenstein, who I really think is one of those rare examples. We talk about musical geniuses. We talk about artistic geniuses. We tend not to talk about philosophical geniuses. It's not the right word. Wittgenstein was a philosophical genius. 
And he had, he had a family that was like that as well. His brother, for example, who had his arm blown off in the First World War, was one of the most phenomenal and well-known virtuos pianists. Um, and after he lost his arm, um, composers started writing um, music for one hand just for him because he was, he was absolutely remarkable and very well known. I can see musical heads nodding. There are people who... He had a phenomenal, he had a phenomenal architect in the family as well. Phenomenal writers, particularly musicians. Um, he actually had a tragic family because... Is this a problem? No? Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, he also had a tragic family and quite a depressed family. His, his, two of his siblings um, committed suicide. And Wittgenstein, Wittgenstein, I think, all the way through his life, it's very clear that he had a, he had a tortured he had a tortured soul. When he was a young student, he moved from Austria, he moved to Manchester, which is a town in England, with a very good university where he studied architecture. And he spent a year studying architecture in Manchester. He was very mathematical and, and that sort of thing. And after, after a year of architecture in Manchester, he, through connections with one person and the other, he was very wealthy. He moved in very flash circles. He made his way to Oxford. And while in Oxford, sorry, Cambridge. Oh, I know lots of people who would be very angry at that mistake. <laughs> while in Cambridge, he became closely connected with Bertrand Russell the great British philosopher, and drove Bertrand Russell insane. Wittgenstein was a very, very difficult man. Very difficult man. Extremely difficult to pin down. And as he got sucked into the world of philosophy, he studies with Bertrand Russell, and Russell writes in his diary, it's a very famous quote, people like, people like quoting it, Russell writes of Wittgenstein, I've got this Austrian student, he's been driving me mad for a year and I have nothing left to teach him. I have great hopes that he will solve all the problems of philosophy. That's pretty good going, isn't it? So Wittgenstein is this, is this, is this, phenomenal, this phenomenal mind, this phenomenal philosophical, phenomenal philosophical talent. He seems to have been a little bit of a dandy. Um, in university, very, very interested in music, very, very lonely, struggling terribly with his sexual identity, not quite sure which team to bat for, as they say. And he's going, he's, he's, he seems to be going backwards and forwards with this all the way through his life. Um, most of his biographers assume that he, he fell in the middle at, at the end. Uh, he never really found love. He never really settled down. He didn't know which side of it. He got engaged to a woman once. He lived for protracted periods of time with different men. The various different men all claim not to have had intimate relations with him, although they lived together for long periods of time. He seems to have, he seems to have struggled and grappled and not really known where he belongs. So if, if, oh, one more thing. Wittgenstein decided that he was going to live off his own earnings, which means that he gave up the biggest genetic lottery ticket in, in Europe. Right? He renounced all of his wealth, and he gave his wealth back to his family. He gave all of his wealth back to the family and actually lived in poverty 
throughout his life. Wittgenstein had a very, very hard time making a living. He didn't have a job for many years. He never completed his doctorate, right? He didn't have a job. And for a short period of time when he became professor of philosophy at Cambridge University, <laughs> which is quite a jump, it was at the time the most prestigious academic position in, in philosophy in the world. Apart from the period of time when he, when he held that position, Wittgenstein struggled financially. He lived, he lived a very, very primitive living. Lived a very, very poor, poor life. If you think about his life story, it's really enigmatic. You've got a guy who's Jewish, but not Jewish. You've got a guy who's homosexual, but not homosexual. You've got a guy who is incredibly wealthy, comes from the tremendous, tremendous wealth, upper class, and lives, and lives in poverty. And then, one more enigma just to throw out. Wittgenstein was a philosopher who hated philosophy. He spent so much of his time convincing his students not to be philosophers that he never had any followers. Wittgenstein used to take his students aside and say, go be a doctor. Get out of the philosophy department. Go and study medicine. Go build houses. Learn electronics. Get out of philosophy. This is a waste of time. Don't do this. Wittgenstein's fundamental position about philosophy is that philosophy is a waste of time. So again, very enigmatic. Very strange. Wittgenstein renounces his wealth, but is then drafted into the German army in the First World War. He serves in the German army in the First World War and actually puts himself into a very, very, very dangerous combat unit, fights as a soldier in, 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 in the German army and returns to Britain. So he's got this, you know, he's a, he's a war veteran, but not, not on the right side <laughs> and, in, and in the wrong place. An extraordinary, an extraordinary life of tripping himself up over every opportunity to, to consolidate a normal, a normal living. He lived a very tortuous life of self-inflicted, often self-inflicted suffering. During the course of World War I, Wittgenstein wrote his first and only book. And that, it's not the only book that he wrote. His first and only published book, okay? There are books that were published afterwards, right? Posthumously published books. But Wittgenstein wrote one book that was published in his lifetime, and it had the brilliant, catchy title of Tractatus Logicus Philosophicus. And that's this one over here, which has a front cover, by the way. It looks just like the cover of Pink Floyd's The Wall. Right? I don't know why they brought it out like that. Maybe there's a message there. But the Tractatus is Wittgenstein's only published, only, only, only text that he publishes in his lifetime. And after he completes writing this book, he actually sent himself off in total poverty. He sent himself off to a place called Skolden in Scandinavia, where he lived on his own for a year, tortuously working on this book. He ended up completing the book um, during the course of the war and at the end of the war. Right? But Wittgenstein, when he completed this book, could not get it published. 
He couldn't get it published. And if, if you just have a quick look, not at the introduction, but if you just have a look through, you'll see why. I mean, it's, it's, it's statement after statement after statement, and they're, they're numbered. One, 1.1, 1 1.11, 1 1.12, 1 1.13. And that's, there's no, there's no rhetoric. There's no appeal to the reader. It's very, very concise, precise writing. When Bertrand Russell saw this book, he was absolutely furious. Wittgenstein asked him to write a let, uh, an, uh, an introduction to the book to help getting it published. And Bertrand Russell basically wrote in the book, I think Wittgenstein's a genius. I think this book's a load of rubbish. He wrote it in, he wrote it in British understatement, right? But, but basically, that's what he said. I, I, I know how to do this. It's very unpleasant. But when you're asked to write a letter of recommendation, if you write... If you write, Josh is the most brilliant, fabulous, brilliant, superb student I've had this semester, right? Then you know you've killed him, right? If you say he was fabulous out of the people I happen to have in one course this semester, you've killed him. You've got to know, you know the, the code for understatement. If you give a hint, you know, this is a, an insightful, brilliant, creative book that somehow disappoints some of my aspirations, he killed him. But the, but the Tractatus is a remarkable book, and it's a book which Wittgenstein believed, and we'll see this in a second, provided all of the solutions, listen to this, to all of the questions of philosophy. Thank you, and good night. <laughs> now, having said that, Wittgenstein was very, very humble. He really was one of these simple living, humble, strange, prophetic, for those of you who heard me talking about how Heschel understands prophets. You know, he's one of these prophetic people. I don't, I don't have a picture of him here, but if you, if you look it up on, on the internet, he's got these haunting eyes, and you see this picture of a, a really a very extraordinary individual who on the one hand seems so humble, and on the other hand thinks that he's solved all of the problems of philosophy. He says it straight out. We'll see right now. So again, Wittgenstein is enigmatic. Wittgenstein is enigmatic. Now, what I would like to do is to try and give you something of a taste of the central ideas in Wittgenstein's work. And I'd like to suggest, and I want to be very careful in how I word this, I don't think it's a good idea to try and explain Wittgenstein. He is enigmatic. The explanation is that he's enigmatic. I don't want to say, here he is, he's a, he's a Jew, or here he is, he's a Muslim, or here he is, he's a Buddhist, or here he is, he's this, that, or the next thing. I do want to claim that Wittgenstein can be understood as a Jewish thinker, and that understanding Wittgenstein can enrich very deeply the way in which we think about Judaism and the way in which we think about post-modernity. Okay? Now, post-modernity is a much, much later term. It's a bad term. I hate that term. But people who trace the origins of post-modernity tend to look at Wittgenstein as one of the foundations, one of the important building blocks. You can't do it without referring to other people who came before. I'm not going to start name-dropping and, and mentioning all sorts of philosophers, but I'll mention one who everybody has heard of, Nietzsche, who plays a critical role. But, but Wittgenstein is, is, really, is really a turning point and a critically important, critically important philosopher. So 
Before I give you a philosophical introduction, that was a little bit of the biography. It's a little bit of the biography. His story actually is very strange. Just a little bit more, I want to tell you about his story. When he finishes, he decides he's completed all the problems of philosophy. Um, he, he manages to get this book published, and then he goes and gets a job as a grade school teacher in one of the, one of the you know, backwater towns in the Austrian hilltops. And, and that's what he does for years. He teaches grade school. Um, apparently, he wrote a curriculum. So there's something else that was published. He wrote a curriculum for second grade. Um, people, you can imagine, philosophers and scholars of philosophy went tracing around for these, you know, Austrian equivalents of redneck kids who'd studied with Wittgenstein in the second grade. To so, you know, what did he teach you? What did he do? And apparently, Wittgenstein had this very strange way of teaching. But he would come into the class with broken machines that he had sabotaged and give them to the students and say, okay, figure out why this is broken and how to, and how to fix it. And it's, it's an idea that we've all heard of, but it's actually a pedagogical uh, um, original move. It's an innovation. And people in you know, the pedagogy of this kind of problem-solving teaching, people actually do accredit Wittgenstein as one of the pioneers of it. But he was also, he seems to have been a terrible teacher. And, and, and he lost his job for hitting one of his students. So... <laughs> It's very enigmatic. It's very complicated. And after they managed to convince him, the, the, these you know Cambridge philosophers used to go on pilgrimages to Wittgenstein and try and pull him out of the Austrian hinterlands and bring him back to Cambridge. And when they finally convinced him to return to Cambridge, Wittgenstein taught a course. He, would taught, he taught the same course every year, and it always had the same name. It was called Philosophy. <laughs> and that's it. And apparently he read comic books with his students and tried to analyze language in comic books. And if he ever had more than six students, it was a remarkable year. So Wittgenstein was one of these people. He seemed to have tremendous, tremendously close connections. He had friends. But he also seemed to push people away. That's another feature of what is so enigmatic about him. Um, during the time... Of his, of his teaching in Cambridge the second time, his students started to write manuscripts. Um, they used to take notes of his classes. And they came out, there was a little blue manuscript and a little brown manuscript. And there were notebooks. And they, they were actually published after his death as the blue and brown books. Um, and he compiled the thinking of the blue and brown books into his second book, The Philosophical Investigations, that was never completed and that was published only after he died, and which I think is genuinely recognized as the most important philosophical writing of the 20th century. But he never published it because he was never satisfied with it. And even to his last days, Wittgenstein was still writing top-notch philosophy. Right, there's a third book called Uncertainty. And there are many, many, many other essays and articles and bits and pieces. But in his last days, he was still writing phenomenally original, top-notch, brilliant philosophical writing. So it's really a remarkable, a remarkable story. So what's the question? The question is, why did he think he'd solved all the problems of philosophy? And how does that affect us? So I'd like to have a look at the first text, which is um, the introduction to the Tractatus Logicus Philosophicus. Okay? Please interrupt me with questions when we get into the philosophy here. Please feel free to interrupt me with questions. It's a good story. Did I bore you with his life story? Or was that interesting? It's a good story. It's a good story. Right? It's a good meiselach. Okay. So, string me a yarn. Okay. Perhaps this book will be understood 
only by someone who has himself already had the thoughts that are expressed in it. Do you remember what I said about Heschel's opening lines? <laughs> this is the exact opposite. Now, Wittgenstein is one of the most remarkably original, genius philosophies of the 20th century. Philosophers of the 20th century. But the only people, he tells us, who are going to understand his book are the people who've already figured out that for themselves, that's another thank you and good night. <laughs> what are you going to do, right? He, this is enigmatic. Wittgenstein seems to be saying, I'm going to write a book that you're not going to be able to understand unless you know what's in here already. So if I already know what's in here, I don't need to read the book. And if I don't know what's in here, there's no point reading the book, right? Now, just before I, just before I, I go on with this a little bit, I'm going to throw out a comparison. But for anyone who has studied mystical Jewish literature, Kabbalistic literature, and I'm sure that Wittgenstein didn't, but you all did. You had lots of Rachel Elior last year, right? So many Kabbalistic texts begin with statements that are actually very similar to this. If you don't already know what's in this book, don't, don't read on. Right? If you don't, if you don't already understand, if you don't already understand what what I'm going to be writing about, don't don't touch. That's a formula. It's a little bit different when you translate it into medieval Hebrew. It reads a little bit differently, but it's basically the same message. It's a sort of a stop sign that you're supposed to ignore. Right? But again, it's enigmatic. It's enigmatic. It invites us into the sense of we're about to 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 discover a puzzle which brings us back to the way that he taught. Here's a puzzle, try and figure it out. Wittgenstein, I think, was presenting himself to his readers as a puzzle. And that's the key to the fascination. And when you get hooked, you really get hooked. How am I gonna figure this guy out? Who is he? What's he thinking? What is it all about? There's a puzzle here, it seems so obvious. I can't crack it, what is this? That puzzle is very, very, it's addictive. You can get really hooked on Wittgenstein, right? You can really get drawn in. So let's read on. So it is not a textbook. Its purpose would be achieved if it gave pleasure to one person who read and understood it. Now you're getting a sense of why the publishers didn't want to publish the book. <laughs> Right, But there is an expression in Jewish Kabbalistic literature, P forgive me for making these comparisons, right? Echad ba'il, can anyone complete? I can see you waiting to complete it. Echad ba'il shtayim b'mishpacha, right? One in every town, two in every family, families spread amongst towns. Rare individuals are going to understand this book and I'm only addressing it to them, right? This is just for those special people. The book deals with the problems of philosophy and shows, I believe, that the reason why these problems are posed is that the logic of our language is misunderstood. The whole sense of the book might be summed up in the following words. What can be said at all can be said clearly. And what we cannot talk about, we must pass over in silence. Wittgenstein's silence 
is very, very famous, as is Wittgenstein's ladder. We'll get to his ladder in a minute. But Wittgenstein's sense is, if it can be said, it doesn't need to be philosophized. People manage to communicate with each other all the time. And people who try to figure out the deeper secrets of how we talk about talking about things, those kinds of people need to recognize that they're better off confining themselves to silence. Language, Wittgenstein tells us, is misunderstood. That's the simple and the most important point of Wittgenstein's argument. He tells us nothing. I told you he tells us nothing. All he tells us is that if we avoid philosophy, we all know how to speak. <laughs> we can all communicate with each other. But when you start talking about philosophy, then it all goes wrong. So those of you who were here for the Heschel, you remember? I, I gave you a little parody on Socrates. Do you remember that one? So what do you mean good? What do you mean? So Wittgenstein will play around with time. Okay, so what's the time? So, can anyone tell me what's the time? What's the time? Everyone knew what to do, right? Everyone knew what to do. But then, if we, you'll know to look at your watches and to tell me the time is whatever it is. Ten minutes later than it would have been if Ari's introduction hadn't been so long. <laughs> but if we, but if we stop for a minute and ask ourselves the question, well, what is time? Where, where, where is time? Um, and how can how can we how can we define it? Give me, give me. Well, not even on that level. You've gone all physical on me. Just in language, what do I mean by saying it's now? Right. Well, how how did now come and go? How long is it now for? And how, how do we how do we actually talk about it and define it and understand it? Philosophers philosophers have spent books and books and books on this question, and Wittgenstein will simply say. I can ask you the time you can give me an answer. What's the problem? Why analyze? Now, that is coming, that's a, a naive representation of an idea that's much more complex. But Wittgenstein is actually deeply concerned with the idea that language, words, do not point at essences. The Greek understanding of how words took on their meaning was that they related to some kind of a great essence there was the there was the the ideal horse in the sky which nobody could see and which nobody could understand but that every horse on the world in the world was somehow a representation of it and that language was through definition and clarification of understanding will get clearer and closer and closer to the source of true meaning that's called metaphysics reaching a level of understanding of the meaning of words and concepts that will always hold true, that will always be. And Wittgenstein is absolutely convinced that that's a total misunderstanding of how language works. Because everything that can be said can be said clearly. And anything that cannot be said is best not said at all. Now, I'm going to explain this a little bit more in a few minutes, but I want to read on. Thus, the aim of the book is to draw a limit to thought, or rather not to thought, but to the expression of thoughts. 
For in order to be able to draw a limit to thought, we should have to find both sides of the limit. Thinkable, I'm not going to explain that now. Let's turn over. It will therefore only be in language that the limit can be drawn. And what lies on the other side of the limit will simply be nonsense. I do not wish to judge how far my efforts coincide with those of other philosophers. That's an understatement. He doesn't quote anybody. Virtually. Now and again, one or two teeny references. Wittgenstein's doing his own thing. Indeed, what I have written here makes no claim to novelty in detail, and the reason why I give no sources is that it's a matter of indifference to me whether the thoughts that I have had have been anticipated by someone else. I don't care. I will only mention that I'm indebted to Frege and to, and to Russell. If this work has any value, it consists in two things. The first is that thoughts are expressed in it, and on this score, the better the thoughts are expressed, the more the nail has been hit on the head, the greater will be its value. Here I'm conscious of, falling, of having fallen a long way short of what is possible, from the author of the best book in the 20th century, simply because my powers are too slight for the accomplishment of the task. May others come and do it better. On the other hand, the truth of the thoughts that are here communicated seems to me unassailable and definitive. Do you see the enigma here? Right? I, am there, I therefore believe myself to have found on all essential points the final solution of the problems. And if I'm not mistaken in this belief, then the second thing in which the value of this work consists is that it shows how little is achieved when these problems are solved. This is a slippery character. This is a slippery character. Now, what I would like to do is to spend a few minutes explaining to you how he thinks he has solved all the problems of philosophy. And I'm then going to show you the place in the book. I'm going to show you the place in the book where you actually get a glimpse of what he means when he says that all the problems of philosophy are solved. And then what I'm going to do is try and show you why I think when he does this, he touches on something which is absolutely central to the way in which Judaism operates and the way in which we understand what it means to be Jewish. If that seems like a long stretch, it does? Okay, so we're gonna have to pull off the pyrotechnics here. If I pull this one off, then it's, then it's been good, right? And if I don't, then you can send me home in a plane tomorrow. Okay, so let me try and explain how, how, this, how this works because I think it's striking and I think it's really, really worth understanding. Bertrand Russell, and in his time, the people, of his, the people of his circle, they were called positivists. Now, I, I've been, I keep on saying, you know, I'm teaching about the, the thinkers that I love, and, I, and I keep, whenever I talk about politics and peace and that kind of thing, I'm always trying to avoid being political, and I don't take sides, and, and this is good, and that's good, and I hate positivists. There, I'll be straight out with it. I hate positivists. I have a fundamental objection to the notion of positivism. Positivists basically believe, it's a school in philosophy, but positivists basically believe 
The fundamental principle of positivism is that we can reach absolute clear scientific certainty in our description of the phenomena of the world. So if I'm talking about love, or if I'm talking about, about goodness, or I'm even talking about what a cup is, I can define it in ways that will then become absolutely solid and stable and universal across time in every culture and in every setting. And Wittgenstein is absolutely baffled by the ways in which positivist thinkers are trying to overcome the things that are so obvious in language. And the things that are so obvious in language is that different words can mean different things in different sentences, right? And that the same words can mean different things in different sentences, and the same words can mean the same things even in the same sentence, and that I can change my mind about what a word means, and I can start using it differently, and if I do it for long enough, the word will come to mean what I want it to mean. And that words don't necessarily point to reality at all. Words don't point to reality at all. If anybody has ever read the Odes to the Grecian Urn, has anyone re read Keats's Ode to a Grecian Urn? It's actually a very, a very, have you read it? It's a beautiful poem, isn't it? He's describing a Grecian urn in the British Museum in London. I went to the British Museum in London to see the Grecian urn. It ain't half as beautiful as the poem. So it's clear that language doesn't just describe things in the world. Language doesn't seem to point outside. Positivists assume that words are signposts for things in the world, and that those signposts are themselves transparent. The word is not the word. The word is the thing that it's describing. It's the name of the thing or the idea. It can be an abstract concept, but it's the name of the thing. Wittgenstein comes along and says to us, words aren't transparent. They're not two-dimensional. They're not on the page. Words are, I, they're objects themselves. They are things. And when we look at the world with language, we cannot avoid looking at the language itself. Words are things. They might be sounds. They even might have their meaning in totally arbitrary ways. The words mean what they mean because of some kind of a convention. They don't point at anything. But, but they're objects in and of themselves. So, so Wittgenstein will say, will say something like this. Have I got a little pen here? If I, if I, can, I can I move with this? Yeah, does that work? Does it, is it going to screech? Where's Austin? No, he's not here. Okay, so if I decide I want, I, want to, I want to write a sentence on the board, can I do that? Is that okay? I'll pick, I'll pick a nice sentence. It's okay here? Right, cool. So I decide, I decide I want to write a sentence on the board. There we go. I love you. Ah. I do, I do, I love you. Okay, now, now, or... I could, I could even do, I, oops, just so you don't call me a liberal softy. I hit you, okay, that works too, right? Right, not hate, hit, hit, make. Okay, so when I, when I talk about the relationship between this and meaning, 
Okay, the normal understanding is that this points at me, this points abstractly at some kind of a, of a feeling, and this points at you, right? So the words draw their meaning from the way in which they correspond to some higher level of meaning that will then apply to what's actually going on in the world. Wittgenstein says that's ridiculous. Wittgenstein says that's absolutely pointless. Because if you're going to talk about that, you don't actually know what it is you're talking about. There's no, there's no other realm that we know anything about that we can talk about. And if we assume that words are objects, then words are in the world. They don't point outside of the world. They don't reflect things that are outside of the world because we don't know about them. What he is saying is that language is limited by the fact that it is in the world, just like everything else that's in the world. So how does that mean the same as the feeling that I have for you? Wittgenstein will argue that what we have inside this sentence, this is a little bit difficult to understand, so I'm going to try and make it as clear as I can. What we have inside this sentence is a picture. It's like a snapshot. Right? It's called Wittgenstein's picture theory, or the Bildung theory. It's, it's, it's like a snapshot. And the relationship between the words in, in the sentence and the words themselves are absolutely arbitrary. But the relationship between the words in the sentence, because of the way that we think about grammar, is a picture which reflects reality. But in the same way as the picture of me is not me, and is not connected to me in any fundamental way. It's just an image. So words are images. Words are images. Which raises a very striking question, by the way, for those of us who are thinking Jewishly. How come you're not allowed to make pictures of false gods, but you are allowed to write their names? Right? That's an interesting question. Right? The, it's an interesting question. We won't, we won't explore it too far. The issue, the issue is that language does not point at anything outside of itself. It works within itself. There is a structure inside language that mimics the things that I find in the world. If that is the case, and Wittgenstein argues it, it's very, very complex. But if that is the case, and this is the critical point, Wittgenstein does away completely with the idea of there being metaphysics. There's no metaphysics. You don't need metaphysics in order to explain how language works. Language is just another thing in the world which, like pens and like cameras and like all sorts of other things, has the ability of duplicating other things in the world and mimicking them so as we'll recognize them. Language, if you like, is a virtual reality. It's a virtual reality that we use. It's an effective way of communicating. We use it, we manipulate it, it's like a tool in our hand. It's a kit, we have these tools. And he describes words as being like hammers. I can use the hammer, I can use it to pull out a nail, I can use it to thump in a nail. But the words themselves are always going to be subject to the way in which I use them. Words are defined by their usage. Now, if this is a common idea that you've heard of before, Wittgenstein was the first person to articulate it fully and demonstrate it and produce a system of explaining how the whole of language works by confining it completely 
to the boundaries of this world. Now, what has any of this got to do with Judaism? Turn to the last page. Turn to the last page. Do you want to write something? Oh, you're going to close it to stop it from drying up. Thank you. Thank you very much. Turn to the last page. Wittgenstein's assumption, okay, Wittgenstein's assumption is that when I realize that language does not point outside of the world, okay, when I, oper when I recognize how it works internally, I can get rid of all of the questions of philosophy. If I find somebody having a conversation about, so what is truth? Wittgenstein's answer will be, you can tell me, what's truth? What? Well, truth is a word that I can use in sentences, right? I can say, I'm telling you the truth, right? And I can say I'm telling you the truth even when I'm lying. I'm telling you the truth. Well, I can say that sentence as well, but God is also another word. God is also another word, which is getting us closer to where this goes into Judaism. Truth doesn't actually represent an absolute concept that anyone can define, point at, and, and, and hold in a stable way. Truth is another word. And it's a word that we use in certain sentences that draws its meanings from the way that it operates in sentences. If I ask you, sit down, truth, I've misused the word. It's not a philosophical problem. If I say to you, what is truthful about something, okay, my assumption is that what is truthful about it has to correspond not with a metaphysical reality, but with the ways in which the word truthful assumes meaning in language. Now, if I don't do that, I'm going to get myself into a terrible mess because I'm going to define truth in an absolute way. And however absolutely I define it, and this is the problem with positivists, when other people use the term differently, define it differently, and give it other meanings, I'm going to claim that my meaning is superior to their meaning, and I'm therefore justified in killing them, or persecuting them, or locking them up, or kicking them out, or doing something, right? It's actually very charged. Politically, we're using language all the time, and Wittgenstein is plucking out the metaphysics from language. But then look what he does. So that's why he thinks he's solving all the problems of philosophy. But what he needs to do is to explain how language works so completely that in every case, he can demonstrate that a sentence can be understood simply and plainly without turning to metaphysics. And that's the theme that he does in all of his books. He works through this theme, example after example after example after example. Now have a look at this passage, which is really the striking turn where it all turns around. 6.53. This is the most famous passage in Wittgenstein. The correct method in philosophy, in philosophy would really be the following. To say nothing except what can be said, i.e. propositions of natural science. That means stuff that we know is in the world, i.e. something that has nothing to do with philosophy. Right? Now, don't talk to me about philosophy. Philosophy is a waste of time. My job is to prevent people from doing that. And then, whenever someone else wanted to say something metaphysical, to demonstrate to him 
that he had failed to give a meaning to certain signs in his propositions. So the purpose of the philosopher is to prevent other people from doing philosophy. When you start, when you start defining things in absolute terms, says Wittgenstein, the purpose of the, of the philosopher is to show you that, you that you're talking, either you're talking nonsense or you're ignoring the rules of language, or you're just ignoring the fact that the limits of thought and the limits of the world and that language is limited by the world too, because language is here, it's in the world. Remember the title of this session, Revelation and Concealment? It's, it should be coming a little bit clearer now, what is being revealed and what is being concealed. Although it would not be satisfying to the other person, he would not have the feeling that we were teaching him philosophy, Rahman al-Islan, thank God. This method would be the only strictly correct one. So you've got to make people clear that you're teaching them about the use of words and you're not letting them go off on philosophy. And then comes the big punchline. My propositions serve as, elucidu as elucidations in the following way. It's a wonderful image. Anyone who understands me eventually recognizes them as nonsensical. Now, if you've plowed, your, I gave you the shortcut. If you've plowed your way through this book, and believe me, it's a minecracker. In the book, he makes an argument, which he actually revises in his second book. But he makes an argument to explain how language works based on the picture theory that I've only just given you a little smattering of. But he makes a comprehensive argument to show you how language works without metaphysics. It's a little bit more complicated than I gave you just now, and I think looking at your faces, it's been complicated enough. But once you've dragged yourself through the book, you get the great satisfaction, the feel good at the end of the book, and he tells you, if you've understood what I've said, you've been wasting your time. Because what you're gonna eventually recognize is that everything I have to say is nonsensical. When he has used them as steps to climb up beyond them, he must, so to speak, throw away the ladder after he has climbed up it. He must transcend these propositions and then he will see the world all right. Seven, what we cannot speak about, we must pass over in silence. It's the most incredible ending, terrible beginning, brilliant ending. Wittgenstein gives us the sense that studying language and studying the operations of language is all about confining ourselves to the world and understanding that language is just another thing in the world. Language is very important. And we're, Wittgenstein is one of those thinkers who's responsible for what the right name for, for postmodernism should be. It's called the linguistic turn in philosophy. It's when philosophy starts focusing on language because we recognize that all philosophy is done in language. So we need to know how language works if we want to talk about philosophy, right? So Wittgenstein is saying, let me show you how language works. And I'm going to show you over and over and over and over and over and over again that language is just in this world. And then he gives us a mystical moment. And he says, if you have progressed 
in your understanding that language is just a thing in this world, then you might get to see the world aright. You might get a chance just to see that the world is just the world. It's the things that are in front of us. It's natural science. And if you reach that understanding, you might be able, through the act of philosophy, through the act of explaining, ah, oh, this is just this, this is just this. These are just things, truth, beauty, law, consciousness. All the mysteries of the world are just words. They're just things in the world. And if you can achieve that consciousness, what Wittgenstein is saying, this book was not supposed to teach you anything. It was supposed to give you an experience of recognizing that everything is just what it is. And if you recognize it as such, you can throw away the ladder, you can leave go of the world, you can get a sight of something metaphysical. But when you see it, don't dare say a word. Because when you do, you just fell off the ladder. You just fell back down again. Now, a lot of people have tried to... You can now get a sense of why people will call Wittgenstein a Buddhist, right? And you can also... By the way, when you think about his own tortured life and the way in which he lives his own tortured life and the tortured experience, you can also see why they, why they call him a Catholic, right? But, but it's... Oh, no, it's very central. It's, very, it's funny, but it's true. Um, but the thing that, that is really very striking... And people tend not to notice this, is that Wittgenstein's philosophy is rooted, or let, I don't want to say rooted, because it's too enigmatic for that, but Wittgenstein's philosophy is actually a very profound, profound insight into the heart and soul of the rabbinic and the biblical religious experience of revelation. Revelation is the transposition of the divine into language, right? That's revelation. And the fundamental notion that what we have in this world is divine, like philosophy, if we were to talk about a Wittgensteinian look at Judaism, the idea that what we have in the world is divine or that I am but I am holding the knowledge of God. That idea is the last idea that I think is the last idea that you will find connected with traditional Jewish understandings of what revelation actually is. Let's do a five-minute comparison. Anybody ever heard of Maimonides? The Rambam. Okay. So the Rambam writes this incredible book. Incredible book. It's called More Nevuchim, A Guide to the Perplexed. The first chapters of the Guide to the Perplexed are... Does anybody know what the first chapter of the Guide to the Perplexed are about? first section of the Guide to the Perplexed... Well, Selim is an example. The first chapters of the Guide to the Perplexed are all about biblical homonyms. Biblical homonyms are words that we don't, that we don't necessarily know how to read them in the Bible because the Hebrew text can be read in different ways. So you've got words that, that without the dots and dashes... Right? And you don't have the dots and dashes in the Bible. You could read them one way, you could read them the other way. And what, what the Rambam does is he drags you through about eight chapters 
of homonym after homonym after homonym after homonym. Sometimes it's, it's words like that. Sometimes you know how to read the word, you just don't know what it means. Right? My favorite example is Yad. Right? What does Yad mean? Yad means a hand. But if you go to Jerusalem and go to the Holocaust Museum and think that Yad Vashem means a hand and a name, you've misunderstood the name of the place. And you've also misunderstood the verse in Isaiah. Yad Vashem means a grave. Because Yad is a monument and Shem is a name. Right? So Yad Vashem is a monument with a name on it. It's a gravestone. That's why it's called Yad Vashem. Yad doesn't only mean a hand. Yad also means a monument. And the Rambam writes about it. But it's true for all kinds of words. The list goes on and on and on and on. In fact, the Hebrew language is absolutely saturated with this idea that words are just words. And that their meanings are transient, and we can change them around, and we actually don't know what they ever mean for sure. And we don't, they're always, they're always going to change in different contexts. So you use them in different ways. They don't point to anything metaphysical. The ultimate, the ultimate experience of studying the biblical text, if you do it in a Wittgensteinian way, and I think the same will apply to the, uh, a Maimonidean way, for example, but not exclusively. If you look at the biblical text and you're conscious of the way in which language operates, the biblical text does much more to point you to the world than it does to actually tell you anything about God. What's the name of God in the Bible? Well, there are lots of them. There are lots of them, lots and lots and lots of them. So will the, the real God please stand up? The confusion that is caused by the use of multiple terms is to point to the idea that revelation, i.e. the knowledge of God, is actually concealment. If there is a metaphysical realm, language is the last thing that will tell me about it. The metaphysical realm is draped in silence. Now, Ibn Ezra, who is one of the wonderful commentators um, in the Middle Ages, comments on the, the name of God, the, tre the tetragrammaton, the four-lettered name of God, Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey, that each one of those letters individually can be a silent letter. Right? So people have a big question, you know, how do you pronounce Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey? Right? Those of us who were brought up on Monty Python movies, are you anyone? All I said was, my, this piece of halibut was good enough for Jehovah. You remember that one? All right. But if, if you actually, if you actually follow Ibn Ezra's analysis of yud he vav -Hey, the correct pronunciation of the true, soul, actual name of God, Shem HaMefurash, is silence. Absolute silence. And that's why it's ineffable. It's the name that we don't say. It's the name that we don't know how to pronounce. And it's the name that is itself silence. There's a Hasidic teaching of the Rosh Shitzer Rebbe, which is, I don't know anything about the Rosh Shitzer Rebbe except for this one, which is phenomenal. It's, it's, actually, it's actually quite a complex reading of the story of the giving of the Torah and how the Torah was given. And I'm not, going to, I'm not going to go into all of his textual analysis for you. I will with pleasure if you want, but I think... I think you're getting, you're getting filled. Um, but his assumption is 
that you can read the biblical text with a simple explanation of how come the people could not hear when God gave the Ten Commandments. Now, there are maximalistic and minimalistic readings of, of exactly how much of the, first, the Ten Commandments God actually said. But the Rosh Hashanah's analysis, and it's brilliant, is that the only bit of the Ten Commandments that God himself said is the first Aleph. And how do you pronounce an Aleph? In other words, the notion of revelation, there is a strong Jewish mystical tradition that the notion of revelation is in and of itself rooted in the fundamental experience of concealment. Which if we think about the story of, the, of Migdal Bavel, right, the Tower of Bavel, the people are trying to build a tower. That represents to me, you know, metaphysics. We're going to use the things that we have in the world in order to build a tower that will reach the skies. And God, he doesn't destroy the Tower of Babel. He deconstructs it. Right? He says, oh, you think because there's only one language, that one language will talk to God? Will get you all the way to God? Right? Even though there's a pun in the, in the, in the beginning of the passage, it says, Varim achadim. Right, so even the single language is, has got a plurality built into the way that we're introduced to it. But what are the people trying to do? They say, We're going to build a language. We're going to make a name. And we say that. We're going to make a name for ourselves. And God says, it's fine. You can have a name, but you should realize that your name is in language. So we're going to have a French name and a German name and an Italian name and a Spanish name and a language after language after language after language. Why don't they get on? Why can't they carry on building the tower? I mean, when I was told it in kindergarten, it's because one is saying to the other, can you pass the bricks? And the other one is saying, but, but, but you know, sign language, people can manage, right? People can, that, I, people can manage. But the story is symbolic. Language, once we recognize that there are multiple languages, we recognize that language itself is not an essence. The story of the Tower of Babel is the quintessential story of Jewish revelation. God is giving a Torah in language. What can we do with that? We can study it. We can build networks in it. Think about what rabbis do. We'll compare this to this and this to that. and We'll categorize this and categorize that and create laws and associations and contrasts and comparisons. And we'll build this huge network of language. This huge network of conversation. And once we've built it, we'll recognize that it's just what it is. It's the world. And if it is sacred, if it is holy, it's because it teaches us to, for a moment to cast away the ladder and to look at the world aright and to know that the things that are beyond must be confined to silence. So, called mamadaka connects, of course. Called mamadaka, which translates as a voice silence. of silence. Right? We can take out the guitars and start singing Simon and Garfunkel as well. But the the idea, the idea that revelation is concealment, hagalui vahanistar. Right? The idea that there is a Torah niglet and a Torah nisteret. Right, ultimately reflects the image of the Torah that we have is the Torah Gluya. 
The Torah Nisteret, the hidden Torah, is not one that we don't talk about that's there. It's one that defies our world. It's one that's outside of language. It is there in silence. Now, I just want to say one, I, I was going to read with you the introduction to the philosophical investigations, which is wonderful, but I think you've all had about as much as you can take. So I'm going to, I'm going to stop, but I, I, I'm, I'm happy to go on. Uh, I can do this for hours, but I'm going to stop. But I, 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 just want to, I just want to say, I just want to say, I want to say something, something, one more thing, just to, just to finish it up. Even though Wittgenstein himself is not Jewish, technically speaking, I think that what he is doing here can be explained or can be described as an attempt to use the very, very classical and traditional approach in Jewish culture to language and to transpose it into the conversation of Western, of Western philosophy. Right? Jewish approach to learning is always to crack language open, right? to turn words upside down. Don't read it this way, read it that way. We're going to make it up. Take out the vav, add a yud, take the mem at the beginning and switch it with a bet at the end, and that's what we want it to mean now. Right? We do that all the time. We burst our own bubble all the time. That's the way we read text. That's the midrashic method of reading text. And I think that, that Wittgenstein's approach to language can be described in those terms. However, and this is, I think, very, very important, and I'd like to finish off with this. I don't think he's just playing games. I think that Wittgenstein is fundamentally motivated, and he says this himself, he's fundamentally motivated by something ethical. He describes himself as charging at the walls all the time. And every time he charges at the wall, he's trying to break out of the limitations of language and he bashes himself up against the wall and falls back. Right? And he tries it again and again and again and again and again and he fails over and over and over and over and over. And that experience of failure, that experience of the inability to transcend the world is a very, very profound lesson in ethics. And I think the message is, as weird as this might sound, it's a message of the glory, for, the glory and the beauty of a religious experience. I think for Wittgenstein, this is a theology. It's as close to theology as you can get in secular philosophy. The, the, the religious experience of thinking about the world is one not of accomplishment, of failure. It's achieved not through the accumulation of power, not through the establishment of uncompromising absolute definition, but it's achieved, if you want to use Buddhist terms, it's the yin and the yang here, it's achieved through yielding. The fundamental experience that I think is associated here with Wittgenstein's thinking is one of disengaging from power, disengaging from force, from recognizing that absolutes, if they exist, nobody can talk about them. And if anybody does, it's just not true. So I would share the following thought. And this is an introduction, perhaps, to the, to the next two lectures in this series. I think that we can look at the postmodern twist fundamentally as a response to the violence of modernist ideologies, 
of the modernist absolutes. This is what societies need to look like. These are values, these are ethics, this is right, this is wrong, absolute justice, absolute truth, absolute science. We're gonna build a, we're gonna build a spaceship, it's gonna take us to the moon, we're gonna colonize the moon, we're gonna cure cancer, we're gonna take control of the world. And the power of that is responsible for a machine that creates tremendous, tremendous violence. And I think that's a tremendous part of the experience of the 20th century. And I don't think it's a mistake to attribute these closing sentences of the Tractatus to Wittgenstein's experiences in the First World War. I think they're connected. There's a stepping back from taking a violent, absolute, positive, positive, positivist position. And I think that what Wittgenstein might be inviting us to consider is the possibility that this resistance to, to, to violence, absolute solid notions of God and truth and power-based religion and power-based identity and power-based culture, not only is it not truthful, it's also not what revelation is all about. Revelation is concealment. Knowledge and understanding if they accomplish anything, they teach us deeply what we do not know. They teach us an epistemic humility. And that's what Wittgenstein, I think, is trying to do. But one last thing. Instead of just doing it and telling us it, he gives it to us as a puzzle. It's an enigma. He gives it to us as a puzzle in his life, in the way he lives his life. And he gives it to us as a puzzle in the way he writes. Reading Wittgenstein is not learning from Wittgenstein. It's experiencing empathetically the experiences of thought that he thinks will build a softer and a gentler personality. And as such, doing philosophy is very close to the experience of Talmud Torah. You study the law to discover that there's no absolute law. You study the language to discover that there's no absolute meaning. You seek revelation and closeness with God in order, deep down, to discover the limitations of your own humanity. It all fits together. It's the same, it's the same structure, and I think that's the key to the postmodern linguistic turn. Yes, I'm finished. Yeah. So there's a lot of debate about this. Wittgenstein writes, um, he writes variously in his diaries. He wrote extensive diaries. Um, he writes variously in his diaries about his connections with Judaism and about his influences, about potential Jewish influences. There's all sorts of, there's all sorts of surmising about this. There's actually an Indian fellow called Ranjit Chatterjee who wrote a book, the best book on this, called Judaism and Wittgenstein. A Triumph of Concealment is the name of the book. And what he claims is that Wittgenstein's big secret is that, he's, is that, he, is, is that he is a closeted Jew. He, he connects it with his being closeted as a homosexual and all sorts of other things. But he's closeted, and that he understands closetedness itself as being part of Judaism. And Chatterjee assembles all the, all the evidence to try and show that Wittgenstein was familiar with the Rambam and that Wittgenstein was familiar with this, that, and the next thing. Um, 
Oh, yeah, yeah, we know it was a Jewish family. It was definitely a Jewish family. It was definitely a Jewish family. Wittgenstein's, his particular branch of the family, his mother's mother wasn't Jewish. But the rest of the Wittgenstein family was a Jewish family. Some of them were and some of them weren't. There's actually a, a, a wacko theory. This is a good one. There's a wacko theory. There's one school picture. It's got nothing to do with his Jewishness. But there's one school picture of Wittgenstein in the same school as Hitler. Um, and there's a wacko theory that there was some kind of a homosexual thing going on there between Hitler and Wittgenstein, and that early hatred for Wittgenstein was responsible for Hitler's... But it's nonsense. It's nonsense. But he was clearly identified as a Jew in his school. Um, that is nonsense, though. But it's, it's one of those... They actually made a movie of that, that theory. You know, the, the, the source of Nazism in, in, in a, in a Hitler-Wittgenstein. It's nonsense. But it's kind of, kind of fun. Yes, George. Yes. That's right. Um, I think you said it all. Words are things. Words are things. I'll give you another one, though, that goes the same way. Mila. Mila, Mila is the other word for a word, right? But Mila also refers to slicing, right? So we have, we have I think, this, this idea. You know, it's got clearly fleshy connotations, but also it's what's broken. It's what's, it's what's not complete. It's what's scarred. It's, it's, it's the remnant of something that once was there. That's milah. That's covenant. So you can, you can play these word games in Hebrew. Ad infinitum. Yes. Did Wittgenstein know Hebrew? That is an interesting question. According to Chatterjee, he did. I'm not convinced. Um, Chatterjee, the, 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 I, did he really, really know Hebrew? Not. Did he read Hebrew? Very possibly, yes. Um, yeah. No, I, 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 I'm making this very clear. I want, if it isn't clear, I want to say it again. I'm not arguing that Wittgenstein was influenced by Judaism. I'm not making that argument. That's this Chatterjee fellow's argument. It's very interesting, but I don't think it's right. But the other people who write about him being influenced by Mahayana Buddhism, that's convincing too. I'm not, I'm not trying to make that kind of a claim. The kind of claim that I'm trying to make is that if we make the comparison, I think that Wittgenstein is a wonderful path to connecting up Western philosophy with the Jewish mystical tradition. So he's a wonderful path for making that, for making those connections ourselves. I'm not trying to explain him as being a result of any of those things. I don't think he's a result of any single thing that I can pin down. Very, very complex and enigmatic character. Yes, one more. Good luck. <laughs> that Wittgenstein would be a very bad Zionist, if at all. Um, I, I can't tell you anything about that. There's nothing. Wittgenstein writes nothing about Zionism. Um, he, lives, he lives through the Second World War. Um, he lives through the establishment of the State of Israel. Um, never made any, any comments on Zionism. That There's nothing. So I have no idea. Um, I would assume that he wasn't a Zionist, or he might have said something about it. Zionism is 
doing something, a state, or uh, Yeah, I think he might have been able to help certain things in Zionism, <laughs> but, um, but he was not a Zionist. He volunteered in Great Ormond Street Hospital as an orderly all the way through the war without telling anybody that before he volunteered, he had been professor of philosophy in Cambridge University. It's, it's a remarkable story. He cleaned, he cleaned beds um, in Great Ormond Street Hospital in London all the way through, all the, way through the war. It's, it's a, he's really a, a very strange story. Yes? He doesn't give reasons. Wittgenstein really is, uh, I think his idea, I, I, it's difficult to, to, I think his idea was to be a puzzle. Um, and, and I think he was a puzzle in his writing. I think he was a puzzle in his relationships. I think he was a puzzle in his behavior. I think he was a puzzle in his, in his attitudes to his family. The single time, by the way, that he used his family wealth. He did once use his family wealth. He spent an extortionate amount of money, hundreds of thousands of, of pounds, to, pay, to bribe Germans to get, his, to get his family out of Europe. He, got his fam he used the family money to get his family out of Europe. But that's the only time that the money was ever used for bribes. Um, but uh, I think the idea was, was, was to, be, to be this enigma. And you feel that, by the way, there are a lot of diaries of his friends, the relationships that he had. People were engaged with him because there was a fascination about him. He was an enigma. He really is fascinating. You can, get very, you can get very hooked. I hope I haven't bored you to tears with him. I'm happy to take other questions afterwards. But uh, Laila Tov. Thank you. The uh, second part of our evening, our evening series continues next Thursday night, right here at 7.30. The topic is, you want to see a little bit what your topic next week, is uh, the ethics of hypocrisy, Derrida's reading of the Akeda. Yeah. Anything you want to say about that or nothing? I, I can do it now. You want to, do you want to do another one? No. <laughs> um, I'll just say very briefly, Derrida, Jacques Derrida, who taught in Irvine for many years, um, he, I th I'm going to make some big connections. For those of you who are following, Wittgenstein and Derrida are very, very closely related to each other, but uh, in philosophically, not family. Derrida was full-blown Jewish, although he didn't, he called himself, I'm Jewish and not Jewish. Um, and he called himself, I'm a believing atheist and all sorts of very complicated things. But, but Jacques Derrida was born as Elie Derry and became Jacques Derrida. So he was, he was really Jewish. Um, he wrote a book called The Gift of Death, and in the third chapter of The Gift of Death, he gives the most brilliant analysis of Akedat Yitzchak, of the, the story of the binding of Isaac. So I'm going to give a little bit of an introduction to Derrida's thought, and then we're going to plunge into his reading of the Akedah. And I think you'll see there are some very... If you're following it as a, as a series, you'll see the connections with, with Derrida, uh, with Wittgenstein very clearly. So there you go. Thank you all. Have a nice evening, and uh, see you tomorrow night at University Synagogue, 8 o'clock.